Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a trial lawyer with Womblebond Dickinson. We appreciate you listening. We have a fun topic today. We're going to be talking about economic development and how to really add value. We've talked at previous podcasts about adding value from the in-house uh, council office, and this is certainly an area where you can do that. We have a special guest today. Uh, John Olson is a senior vice president and general counsel at Blackboard Incorporated here in the Charleston area. John, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, we also have Stephanie Yarborough, my partner here in the uh, Charleston office who does a lot of the economic development work. Stephanie, excited you could join us. Thank you so much. Great. Um, John, before we get into some of the economic development, it might be helpful uh, for you to tell our listeners a little bit about Blackbaud. Many of us may have already heard of it. I know uh, you've got over $2.7 billion in market cap and okay. one of the Charleston's largest uh, publicly traded companies. But just tell our listeners and the other GCs a little bit about Blackbaud and, and your role as, as GC there. Oh, sure. Blackbaud is the is the, actually the world's largest provider of technology solutions to the nonprofit market space. Wow. We have over 3,000 employees and uh, revenues of nearly $800 million. We've been around since 1981. So in that sense, it's a very unique technology company. So it's not just new. And we've yeah. seen many transformations. We started out actually giving our technology in actual computers, in desktop computers. And then we moved to the floppy disks, and then we moved to the internet. Now, of course, we're going through a cloud transformation. So every step of the way for 37 years, BlackBot has been in the forefront of providing technology solutions to nonprofits. We have over 45,000 customers, ranging wow. from large nonprofits to small nonprofits throughout the globe, with offices not only in the United States, but also in the UK and in Australia as well, and Canada. That's amazing. So how, wh tell us a little bit about your legal team. How many folks work in the, in the legal office? Sure. I've been with Blackboard for 10 years, starting in September 2008. And when I started, it was essentially just me. <laughs> so right. we've seen the company grow dramatically and the law department along with it. We now have eight professionals in our law department. Mm. And uh, it's been a wonderful time seeing that grow. And now we have specialists that deal with acquisitions, specialists that deal with commercial contracts, and also, of course, with uh, data privacy, which is one of the key issues for customers. Wow. No, that's great. Well, and I know as part of that growth, not only in the law department, but in the company as a whole, you've got a new headquarters out on Daniel mm -hmm. Island that we'll be talking about here. Why don't, um, and again, I think, you know, for in-house counsel, mm -hmm. you don't often open up a new headquarters or office, mm -hmm. but when you do, there's often questions about, you know, what the role is. It might be helpful for you to talk a little bit about the process of getting a new headquarters and, and what your involvement in that process was. Sure, as, that's as a great question. And that's a great segue from the, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, talking about how the company has grown during my time there and over the 37 years it's been in existence. It really reached a watershed moment a few years ago when the decision was made to seek a new headquarters. Uh, just a little bit of history about the company. It was founded in 1981 in Long Island. And then the founder, who happened to be um, an Englishman by birth, was very keen in the Charleston area. So in 1989, he brought the company down to Charleston. Interestingly, he did it just before Hurricane Hugo. So I guess <laughs> perfect timing. So, so I guess it showed that he was dedicated to the, to the move because they stayed. Um, and over that time, they had some offices, including in um, West Ashley and also then in Mount Pleasant. But in 2000, they moved to uh, Daniel Island and they had the office building that we were in up until the new headquarters. And that office building was a beautiful, it is a beautiful building. We still have some members of our team in it. We haven't completely moved out yet. But it wasn't purpose-built for us. It was actually a multi-tenant building. And though, even though we grew to take over the whole building, it wasn't 
purpose-built for our mission. It wasn't purpose-built for how we go about doing our business. And that's what we wanted to see in our new headquarters. So as we turned to decide what we wanted out of a building, we really wanted an intersection of, of three things. We wanted something that's very techy, because we are a tech company, something very, very much on the cutting edge, something that would attract and retain the type of employees that, you know, that we want in the tech space. And we also wanted to keep it consistent with our nonprofit ethos. So in other words, we wanted something that's very sustainable, something that's very green. And then we also some wanted something that had sort of a nod to Charleston, right? That was uh, built in the vernacular of Charleston, given the needs that we had as a business. And so I, we'll talk a little bit more about that, but I think we achieved each of those three goals gotcha. as we built our building. But before we get to how we built the building, let's <laughs> talk about the decision-making process, because I yes. think that'll be, be interesting too. So, so here we are, and this was about... As 2015, we started thinking, hmm, you know, we're, we're growing, we're outgrowing the building that we're in. We definitely want to attract and retain employees. We want to build a building that has all the, all the modern accoutrement, you know, the, the sort of open mindset the, for, to create the creative collisions between members of the team. So how do we do that? So once we decided we want to do that, and this actually ties in with, you know, how do we pursue economic development generally? And first thing to do is to put a multi-skilled, multifaceted team together mm. because it's not just a legal issue. Right? Sure. Um, I mean, when we move into other buildings, a lot of times it is just a collaboration between real estate and law. But this building a new headquarters is so fundamental to where we're going as a company and so fundamental to our strategy. It's really critical to have a team of people who are dedicated to both understanding the real estate aspects of it. And I'm blessed. By the way, one thing I didn't mention too, I'm also in charge of the real estate function at Blackbot as oh, well as okay. the legal function. So, <laughs> so, so you, got so, to, so you yeah. are calling on both of your hats. Yeah, exactly. Uh, for both this of my hats here. Yeah. And I mean, thankfully, the good news is, is that I have a superb team that really does a lot of the day-to-day -day operational part. I come in more at the strategic level mm -hmm. because if I was responsible for the operational part, we'd probably have a have our, our offices in tents <laughs> in the field somewhere. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, the key is to have a really good team. And I think that's, that, that sounds simple. And I mean, I think that goes for almost any project, but it's actually really hard. I always say, you know, well begun is half done. And so assembling that team is really the most important thing. Mm -hmm. So we got experts from our real estate group, people who have built headquarters before. We had a good financial analyst because a lot of this is what can we build? What can we afford? Mm -hmm. What are our plans going to be? So that's very critical as well. We also, because this building is really an expression of Blackboard in architecture, we also had our marketing folks involved hmm. because we want to make sure that as we build the building, it speaks about what our values are as a company. And we'll get into that a little bit more later. But that's very important to us because obviously being in the business that we're in and the type of company that Blackboard is, we're very, very true to our values and, and living those values is really important to us. So folks from marketing, also, too, frankly, it touches almost every business at some level within our company because we need to understand well, what are your growth plans? What do you need for a call center? How do you like to greet customers? What sort of conference rooms do they like to see? What works best? How about remote workers? What about teleconferencing? So it seems like just a building, but it touches every facet of everything we do as a company. Got you. John, as in-house counsel are working to put together a plan, what kind of information do you need from other parts of the business so that you can begin putting together the package that you're going to use to negotiate for incentive ah, deals? That is a great point, and it is so critical, too, because, again, as I mentioned earlier, having that multi-skilled, multi-faceted team is step one. 
But the reason you need that team is because you need an incredible array of very detailed information that's very forward-looking from the team. So for instance, not only do you need to know, gosh, what type of employees will we have and what type of physical space will they like? We need to know, in a general sense, what are the company's strategies for the coming decade or two so that we can make appropriate commitments to the state, both with respect to the capital infrastructure investment that we're making and also the job commitments that we're making. So, for instance, in our case, and this is uh, public, we committed to netting 300 jobs at least uh, within a certain time period. And so we need to know what we, who we're going to be hiring because mm-hmm. if we made a commitment to do that and then didn't reach it, that would neither be good for the community nor good for Blackboard. So, again, the type of information is very forward-looking. It's very strategic. And so having someone who can not only understand where the company is going strategically but also be able to reduce it to spreadsheets and numbers – So I heavily relied on our CFO associate for this project as well. So that's some of the information. Also, too, Blackboard has a very, very distinct corporate culture, um, but it's also important to get information from marketing as to how they want to present this building because, as I mentioned, uh, this building is a physical embodiment of the values of Blackboard. So we want to make sure that comes across. Also, too, we need to understand from the business folks, we need information from them as to what types of skill sets they see themselves hiring, not only in terms of raw number, but what are the functions that these folks will have so that we can build the workplaces accordingly for them. Because in a workplace, there's a continuum, as my um, director of real estate likes to say, between collaboration and concentration. Um, I guess law, in a general sense, probably tips a little more towards concentration than collaboration. But different jobs, for instance, uh, require different things. For instance, the developers that we have are probably 90% collaboration in their scrum teams. The marketing folks are maybe even close to 100% with with their design brainstorming sessions. So we need to build out those spaces in advance to make sure there's appropriate quiet rooms when people need the concentration and appropriate team rooms and the tools needed for effective collaboration for collaborative sessions. So the type of information we need is far-reaching and uh, multivariate. You've talked a lot about teaming and getting the input from those different groups. Structurally, did Blackboard create a committee to say this is the new headquarter committee with people from different departments? Or how, how is it handled as an organization in terms of where the responsibility for some of that decision-making rests? Yeah, out? we did. We did have a, a, a team or a committee. Um, <laughs> yeah, committee I may like not be say, your, I like to yeah, say team. Team, like may a team be is your the structure. <laughs> I know different companies use different yeah. different words, but sure, you actually sure. you created a, a new headquarter team. We did. We had a new headquarter team. That had folks from the different departments. And, and, and one of the things that actually made some sense is that it was under uh, my jurisdiction because, as I mentioned, I'm not only in charge of law, but also in, in charge of the real estate team. So we had a core team, and the core team was responsible for day-to-day and week-to-week updates, both to management internally, making sure we were staying on our project plan. There was uh, one time where we had our whole project plan on sticky notes in one of our in a war room, mm-hmm. and heaven forbid if a stiff breeze knocked that down, the whole project would have been <laughs> dis- be the whole project would have been delayed a year. <laughs> so gotcha. we took lots of pictures of it though. <laughs> so, but it's really, really um, important to have that core team that meets on a regular basis, and then of course there's the extended team, the folks that you may run into or need to get input from them on say a monthly basis or maybe just an infrequent ad hoc basis, but. Uh, Yes, we did. We had a committee, and, and again, 
I thought it was important not only just to have the team, we also had a, had a war room and had a sense of place. And in that, we were able to, for instance, use as a showcase to show off the different type of furniture options that we had. So it's, it's nice to have a, a physical place to go along with the, with the team. Gotcha. Great. So. Wait, what stage did you think about economic development incentives? Was that at the beginning? And, and when would you get someone like Stephanie involved? No, it was in very much at the beginning. It was okay. very much at the beginning. Um, and I'll, I'll, again, let me give a little mm-hmm. bit of history. As we, as we moved into South Carolina back in 1989, that was before I was with the company, we came down largely because the founder was, was interested in Charleston as a place to live. But as we were here, we realized it's a very business-friendly environment. And so when we, we had our first headquarters, we pursued some economic development programs in the 1999 to 2000 job credits and uh, fee in lieu of agreement, fee in lieu of taxes agreement. So we were familiar historically because okay. we were managing mm-hmm. both the job credits and the fee in lieu of taxes from the 2000 era, even into, the, okay. into this decade. So you had that history. So we had the history. But of course, it had been many years, over a decade since we'd actually gone into market. And since that time, we'd grown immensely. And at the time we were looking at the headquarters, it was not a foregone conclusion that we would stay in Charleston. While we do have tremendous roots in Charleston, over the time, we've also grown to have offices in 19 other locations throughout the United States. Some of them are very techie areas, for instance, Austin Mm -hmm. and Boston, and large areas that we can draw a lot of very capable um, employees from. So we knew we were outgrowing our building in Charleston and the lease was coming up due in about five years and you can't wait to the last minute on something like that. So as we looked at our long range plan, we said, well, what do we want to do? And that's when we cast about at these other locations and thought, well, you know, where, where do we want to go? What do we want to do? And as I said, we obviously have deep roots in, in Charleston and in South Carolina and Charleston and South Carolina have treated us very favorably in times past and we have built up a lot of goodwill. So we certainly had a, had a desire to stay, but at the same time, we have a duty for our share owners to try and get the best deal possible, right? And also we have to take a look and see where is, you know, are we going to be in a tech hub, right? And so that's when we called Stephanie, you know, after, right after we de- developed gotcha. our team. And actually, mm-hmm. what I mentioned earlier about assembling a team, I mentioned about assembling the internal team, but it's just as critical to get the appropriate external team. I mean, we could not have done this without Stephanie and all her economic development contacts. And also, too, we worked with our general contractor, Balfour Beatty, the developer, Holder Properties. And really, I consider them every bit as much of the law department, as much of Blackboard as, <laughs> uh-huh. as actual employees. I mean, gotcha. we really, you know, we really are a part of a greater team. And you have to have that mindset, I think, to have a successful project. That's terrific. Stephanie, I think some of our listeners may be the only GC. They may not have done a headquarters project. They may not be familiar with the whole economic development process. It might be helpful if you just tell us a little bit about your role, what, what you are doing for folks like Blackboard and other clients in terms of that piece. Sure, sure. So economic development is extremely interesting, and it's timing is everything in economic development. So what we do is we come in and work with the local community and the state or states where a large project is looking to locate. So whether that's a corporate headquarters project, which this was, which was, those are, those are fun because they, you know, usually end up with really extraordinary employees and the wages typically that are associated with corporate headquarters projects are are stronger than per se a large distribution center project, something like that. So states and communities get particularly excited and interested in supporting a corporate headquarters project. 
So we get involved early when the company is going through its due diligence in deciding where to locate. So if multiple states are being evaluated, which is typically the case, and then the company narrows it down to maybe one, two, three locations, hoping to get down, narrow down to one, right. um, that goes to the board of directors. But we've usually been involved early so we can work with those various locations that are possibilities for the company to put together an incentive package, which typically comes in the form of property tax abatement programs, tax credits related to employees, and cash grants, and those come with the larger projects. States are very similar. There's no secret as to why. I mean, usually (laughs) the large projects are looking at multiple states, so the economic development laws are often quite similar state to state because we're competing against each other day in, day out for the same companies. So we get involved early. We work closely with the company, usually with the general counsel. If you're lucky enough to work with a great one like John, <laughs> um, as they are, you know, to, to support to support the general counsel, to support the company as they're going through the site selection process. And we're putting together an incentive package for each of those locations as they start to rise to the top. Okay. Um, and then that gives the company a clearer picture. You know, we always say, an incentive package is never going to make a bad deal good, but it will make a good deal great because if there's a location that is optimal for the company and for its business, if that community in the state has supported it with economic development incentives, then that makes it even better. So that's our job to enhance the business decision for the company. And hopefully when we get to the the right fit for the company as far as the location, all those other strategic points that come in line, then hopefully we've gotten an extremely aggressive and competitive incentive package to go right along with it to make it even better. No, that's great. Are there, we we obviously hear the news about Amazon and these other huge corporate locations. um, And I know you've said, you know, a headquarters, you'd probably be thinking about it. Are there other projects, if you're building a new office, but it's not your headquarters, are, are those eligible for economic incentives? Again, I'm thinking, you know, should a company be thinking about incentives anytime they're doing new construction or is there a certain size that you'd recommend? You know, how how do they know to give Stephanie a call? What size project is the the right size? Usually, under South Carolina law, the threshold is a $2.5 million capital investment by the company in real and personal property within the first five years. Okay. And the creation of 10 or more new jobs. Now, and other (laughs) states, again, are very similar. Now, that is, that's, that's the threshold. Um, the economy has been very, very strong. So unless you are in a lesser developed community, typically a company that's doing that type of capital investment job creation is not going to see an incentive package. Those are not, these are all discretionary. Um, the work we do is all discretionary incentives. There are certain things companies can get by law that are statutory regardless. And that's more an accounting function. That's when you take advantage of certain tax credits in whatever state you're located in. But when you start getting into the range of 10 to $15 million capital investment, that starts to get closer to what a community wants to see. When you're starting to get into the range of 100, 200, 300 new jobs, when you're starting to get to 50 million, certainly when you're getting to 100 million and up, now you're in a really good place. You're at a place where no matter what state you are looking at, people are very excited, very interested in supporting you, and they want that type of announcement for their community. Great. All right. That's super helpful. Thank you for breaking sure. it down that way. I think that'll be helpful for listeners. Um, 
when you've decided you've got a project that qualifies, again, for the listeners that haven't worked with mm-hmm. someone like Stephanie, mm-hmm. can you give some practical tips for how to think about the economic development or how to compare jurisdictions? What, what tips would you share with your fellow GCs on, on that, on you know, that question? That, that's a that's a great question. You know, incentives have been very much in the news lately, chiefly right. because of the Amazon headquarters sure. and, and, and their choice of Washington and New York and all the revelations about how they did it and the twists and turns. And some some towns were even actually uh, willing to rename themselves, <laughs> yeah. like a, you know, a Amazonia or something right. like that. So, and I mean, it, it's some of the stuff I was actually I was actually reading um, this because uh, I now that I've gone through this process myself. I find it quite interesting, and it, it's, it was fascinating to see how the whole Amazon thing turned out, and all the things that that they took into consideration, and all the cities that were that were in the bid for that. Ours wasn't quite as followed nationally in the Wall Street Journal, but it was every <laughs> bit as important to us. Um, for us, you know, incentives are really critical. Is we we did take a very broad look around the the country and the footprint of where we have our offices and where we're drawing from for our employees. And it's critical to understand that the incentives and the infrastructure that a location builds up through its public policies is really important. It was frankly a little bit of a leap of faith in 1989 when Tony Bakker, founder of Blackboard, came to Charleston because although he loved the city, it wasn't at the time known as a tech hub. Mm-hmm. So, but the city over time, as you know, has become known as Silicon Harbor and it put, has put a lot of money into that infrastructure. And now there's several other companies like us, Benefit Focus, also on Daniel Island, but many, many other tech companies, which, because um, that's part of incentives too, right? Even though that's not a direct incentive, that, that infrastructure right. that's built up through public policy. But the direct incentives, what we look for are, you know, we, we view that we're investing in the community and we view that the incentives from the state and local government allow us to achieve those investment goals and help us achieve our economic and social goals for the community that we're in. You know, we think they're very effective and, uh, and it was a key factor in our, in our decision. At the same time, as I said earlier, it's something we hadn't done in over a decade. And so once we assembled the internal team, you know, we had to reach out and find someone. And as we looked around, it's similar, but slightly different from the way I pick outside counsel generally. When I look around when I need outside counsel as a general counsel, the first thing is skill and scale, I always say. Look, you know, there's certain skills that I can't have in-house. It doesn't make economic sense for me to have someone sitting just doing, you know, on an economic development expert for the occasional sure. decade that we need, right? It, right? right. So that's <laughs> yes. I think that's um, rare so, to find as an in-house position. Yeah, so, in-house economic development. So I mean, maybe for Amazon or yeah. Google or something. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> that's true. So, that is but, true. Um, there probably so, are some of those companies. So 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 as I mentioned earlier, the, the importance of, of finding the right team. Mm-hmm. So we we um, looked around for the skill, and and this one is slightly different than just pure legal skill. What's really interesting, I think, about economic development, I mean, legal skill is really critical, and to know the law inside out, which Stephanie does, is obviously fundamental, but it actually goes beyond that because so much of this is is connections. And I mean that not in a, in, in a pejorative way, um, but in a way that, you know, who's going to bring the relationships, who has the relationships with state and local folks so that we can have the dialogue and bring the best that we have to offer to the state and local government. So in turn, they can understand the investment we're making in the community, and they in turn can reciprocate with some of the incentives. So having someone who not only knows the law, but has been doing this for a while and knows the the political landscape, who knows the sort of the unwritten rules, right, the the ways mm-hmm. of doing business, and uh, and we found that, and it's so critical to the, uh, to, to the success of our project. 
because honestly, you know, we could have, you know, you can read a book on economic development, but knowing it and having actual experience in it are two different things, right? Right. No, I th think that's a great, that's a great point. Um, and Stephanie, I know you've done this a lot. Are there legal issues that come up in connection with economic development that listeners may want to think about either, you know, confidentiality issues, open meetings, other, other things that might be of concern or, or, or just warning things that you would want folks to be, sure, to be aware of? Sure. I say um, bring in your economic development council early, mm -hmm. um, very, very early, because once a project is no longer competitive, so if the company has already gone through its decision-making process and they've landed on one site, then incentives are typically not available. Because ah. they are not needed anymore. They are because they've already announced they're going. Right. They, <laughs> right. They, yeah, yeah. And yeah. it doesn't even have to be that they've announced. Perhaps they've closed on the real estate. And believe me, communities mm. follow it. The state follows ah. it. Mm -hmm. So if they've you know made affirmative decisions that this is the location where they are going to be, um, then it's too late. So when we get a phone call at that point, we'd be delighted to help plan a ribbon cutting ceremony. Yeah. But there's nothing we can. There really isn't okay. anything we can do. So that's an excellent. So yeah. early, early is. Mm -hmm incredibly important. And the other piece of that is we typically put everybody under a non-disclosure agreement because confidentiality is key. Um, when a company is going through that decision-making process and that due diligence, it's incredibly important that they have the privacy to make those decisions because all sorts of things can happen. You know, we have some projects that are shutting down locations across the country and moving into, you know, this new location. Well, they don't need employees to know yet. They don't even know if they're going to do it. You know, that mm -hmm. it's part of that very important decision-making process that needs to be done in an environment where they can be freed up to make the best analysis for the company. So non-disclosure agreements are important. And then on the company side, we talk very, very closely and candidly with the company about when, when those discussions are had with the local and the state officials about, you know, every state takes a five-year snapshot. We're going to say, how many jobs and what is your capital investment that you anticipate in the next five years? That's all I need to negotiate an incentive package. Mm. I mean, there are going to be more particular surrounding that, but those are right. the That's, two basic questions. Those are the questions. key things. Um, we are careful to talk with our clients because they'll say, well, let's say $5 billion and 5,000 <laughs> jobs yeah. and all sorts of wonderful things will happen. Um it will not happen because these are taxpayer dollars. So the contracts that lock in the incentives have certain thresholds that have to be met to earn the incentives that have been offered to the company. So we always say we are, I handle those discussions about relaying expectations as far as job numbers and capital investment numbers, because that is the basis that all of these incentives will be negotiated. All the contracts will be based on. So our numbers are not our best case scenario in our wildest dreams. This is what we're going to do because that's where everyone likes to start because that that's exciting. But we say, what are we very realistically going to do? Because the best conversation is to say, gosh, you know, because we will be measured at a certain time period that's all spelled out in the contracts. We want to meet and exceed what we said we were going to do and then go back and say, we've done everything plus more We'd like to amend and let's enhance the amount of support that has been offered because we've exceeded the expectations that we set with you. So that's very, very important. And those are conversations that, that happen very, very early. Mm -hmm. And then at, at that point, we're to free up the company to do all the million other important things that they have going on related to this and, and keep this on track. But support, I mean, my role is to support the general counsel in every way possible. So you can do all the important things you need to do. So very well said. And if I can amplify on that, Absolutely. For a second, yeah, uh, and extend on that, this goes back 
to the to the original concept I said about building the team. But let me let me extend on that by saying this is a unique type of project. And when we built this, we characterized this as a generational investment. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, the idea of getting the uh, experts involved early is so critical. Because if you think about it, it is different from most of the type of projects that general counsel and certainly the type that I do on a daily basis, because this is a project that literally has a 20, 30, 40 year lifespan. So that's why it's so important to get that team assembled early because, and, and, and get your economic experts squared away, <laughs> both from the economic development side and your internal people to make sure that you're making the right projections. Because, you know, many times projects that we have in the law department last a year, maybe two. I mean, this is truly a generational investment. And you need to see a long way down the road and understand the strategy of the company over time. What are the twists and turns? What could change? What might not change? So getting ahead of it and getting uh, economic counsel, economic development counsel in early um, and really developing a project plan, a true long-term mm. project plan. I mean, some of the things that we're signing are agreements that won't be uh, fully executed against or completed until 2039 or 2049, right. you know, long after I'll be wow. down in the, you know, keys, <laughs> retiring yeah. or whatever, wherever I decide to go. But but I, I say that only because it's, it's, you know, it's not something you can do off the side of your desk, right? And, and uh, you know, obviously every general counsel is super busy. And that's why, as I said, well begun is half done. Get that team set from the beginning. And then get the project plan. We had a war room, actually, with all the different timelines. And, of course, mm. some of the timelines were you know, very very current, very instant, things we were going to be doing in the, in the first year. But it's a long-term project. I mean, the building itself took uh, over a year and a half to build. And then there's time to move in. And then we're going to, for Blackwood's perspective, we're doing a phase two. That probably won't be built for several more years. So, really, you have to have the mindset that, that you're in it for the long haul. And that's, again, goes back to my point about the importance of building a team and finding the right experts, both from the legal side and from the construction side as well. And we were very fortunate in that respect as well. Um, as far as your question, though, about the uh, you know, concerns about having it leak out, well, we, we actually had code names. Um, oh, which okay. were, uh, and, uh, and, and Stephanie is a, is a master at figuring out <laughs> clever code names that are both very memorable but, but are um, – at the same time, uncrackable. So oh, yeah. that, that helps. Uh, we also, too, um, you know, part of it- That sounds to, like fun, Yeah, too. to Stephanie's <laughs> point, you know, apart from code names, it's timing. You know, get, they get ahead of things. Again, the importance of being early. Team, get there early. Because if we'd broken ground, uh, you know, that's kind of too late. To Stephanie's point, we would just have been scheduling a ribbon-cutting ceremony, maybe get a few dignitaries. That would have been about the incentive that we'd get. That's right. That's right. Also, too, to be quite honest, we had some plan Bs. Um, what if something leaked out? We were concerned about that. So, you know, if something leaked out, and especially since it's tricky sometimes, right? Because obviously a company like Blackboard in Charleston, what we do is of, of moment to the press and to a lot of the people in the area. And so consequently, we were concerned that people might start to triangulate. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's probably not altogether that hard to do, right? If you, were, if you knew people and could make some educated guesses. And so we had, we had leak plans that never had to be enacted. We had plan Bs. Obviously, we had the code names. We were very ahead of ourselves with timing. Um, as far as FOIA requests, from what I understand, and Stephanie, you can probably elaborate more in South Carolina, but Many times, state laws are very protective of economic development plans prior to their being publicly announced. I know, for instance, uh, New York and Virginia and Texas allow a lot of redaction and a lot of exemptions to FOIA. Um, I even had read that the city of Cleveland and their Amazon bid was subject to a FOIA request, and it was so heavily redacted that it was essentially unreadable. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's helpful in the, in the front end. But I will say this much. I will say 
post-deal, once it is announced, I'm actually a big advocate of transparency. I think that's a very good thing because, you know, there is some press about these incentives. And, you know, I've seen it that you know, New York fell over itself trying to get Amazon there. And there's been some negative press about that. Right. So I think it's important for the companies and for the public sector to be transparent about these things and to really be very open about what the outcomes are. Because, um, you know, we believe that uh, that accountability is very important. And um, as far as we're concerned, again, living Blackwad's values of openness and transparency, um, we try and share some of the, the data publicly of what we've done so that the public can understand what they're getting from their investment. I think that's, that's a great point. I know we're, we're about out of time, but let me ask, how do you, you, you talked about transparency. Obviously, you don't want a bad deal where mm-hmm. one gets announced next year that got twice as much as you right, got right. for the mm-hmm. same size. On the other hand, I, I assume there's some concern, particularly for uh, an organization like Blackbud that's so community focused that you look greedy or you're taking mm-hmm. too much taxpayer dollar. I'd be interested, St- Stephanie, first, how, how do you... How do you balance the desire to get the best possible package um, with with fighting a perception that maybe you're you know taking advantage of the community? Sure, sure. So um, the reality is that every community and every state in this country has economic development incentives to offer to companies. That's just the reality, and there's a reason, and there's a reason that it's discretionary, which I think is important. It it puts the power, the control in the decision makers, the elected officials. So they get to determine the types of businesses they want to encourage to locate in their community. And so it's, I think, a very powerful tool to support companies. And I think it would be different if it was not discretionary. You know, I, I like mm-hmm. the fact that the control is with, is with those people who've been elected by the citizenry to make important decisions for their community. Mm-hmm. And it's a way to support your companies. These companies are coming in and making a tremendous investment and they're hopeful that things will work. You know, they come in wanting this to work. I mean, it's not, I mean, there's been an awful lot of time and thought and money by brilliant people to be hugely successful. So I always say, you know, John and I've talked about this. Every job is one family. You know, what these companies are doing when they come in is, is critically important. You know, you announce 300 new jobs, that's 300 families that are supported, that's, um, you know, shopping in the local grocery stores and the stores, you know, it just does wonderful things for the community, not to mention the wonderful work that these companies like Blackbot end up doing in the community. So I think it's absolutely just a win-win. And I think it's also important to note that these incentives are earned. They aren't handed out and no one ever watches to see what happens. You know, the companies who have been offered support from either a local community or the state, you know, they have really tough things to achieve in order to receive those incentives. And it's number of jobs created uh, down to the level of pay, the wages, the Mm. benefits associated with those jobs, you know, the amount of capital investment that's coming into the community and to the state. So, so support is being given, but an awful lot is being asked. And as those companies perform, then they have earned the right to that support. So there's a, a great deal of checks and balances to ensure that the taxpayer dollars that support these companies are, are truly earned. So I, I view it as an absolute win-win. And I wanted to touch on one other point real quick, if I can. I'm fortunate enough to work with great companies all the time. And I have to say, the experience of working with Blackboard is just 
phenomenal in every every single way. You, we get to, you know, companies, we always say, this is a big deal for South Carolina, or it's a big deal to the company. I mean, they're making decisions, like John said. I mean, this is, we're looking around corners and trying to anticipate needs 40 years, 45 years, you know, and the leadership at Blackbot is just phenomenal. And John, as a general counsel, is just remarkable to work with. So I feel extremely privileged to have had the opportunity well, you very to work, kind, to work you. with you. You are very, very kind, and I appreciate your saying that very much. And, and right back at you, we feel the same Thank way for, uh, with uh, Womble Bond Dickinson, who's, who's been fabulous in, in so many ways, and you in particular. Um, just to, again, extend upon some of the things you said, you know, the, the incentives also produce spillovers. The incentive, you know, the spillovers, right, is, you know, again, I think it's a great way to say it. Every job is, an, is a family, and that family buys homes, and they buy cars, and they, they are members of the community. And the incentives also oftentimes bring clusters of companies. For instance, a manufacturing company might have its suppliers closely located around its factories. So you have that as well. And, you know, if you th I was reading, actually, there was a USC, University of South Carolina, study that the 1994 incentives to BMW, which were $60 million at the time, ended up being paid back within five years mm -hmm. in terms of value to the community. And if you think about mm -hmm. how South Carolina has transitioned from what was a textile-based economy to more manufacturing and then high-tech through Blackwater, right. I think one could make a very good argument that the incentives have done, a, done, a, done their job. But beyond that, getting to your question directly, you know, what does a bad incentive deal look like? I think you hit it right on the head. It's something if, you know, if the next week I read in the paper that another company like us had uh, gotten twice the amount of incentives, then that obviously would be a little awkward. Plus also too, and this gets back to planning and the long-term forecasting, you don't want a deal that creates a straight jacket on your company strategy. But um, as far as looking like a, you know, as far as not looking greedy, um, mm -hmm. what we try and strive to do is give back. And we have a very, very strong ESG, Environmental Safety and Governance Program. Mm. And um, I just wanna give a couple highlights about this building in particular that I think uh, listeners will find interesting. And this is our way of giving back, not only to the community, but also to the society at large, which is a key Blackboard value. But some of the sustainability initiatives we put into the building, um, we are LEED Silver certified, and by the time this broadcast, we'll be LEED Gold certified in our building. We focused on energy reduction. We have electric vehicle charging stations. We source food locally in our cafeteria. The wood furniture that was built in the area was from a local manufacturer, Charleston Hart Pine Company. Landscaping was also from our local um, experts to incorporate native plants that benefit the ecosystem. We've fixed the, uh, the um, plumbing with water reduction low flow features, and we have improved air quality, and we used recycled construction materials. So again, I mean, these incentives um, ended up have allowing us to build a building that's sustainable and true to the values of Blackwood and the values of Berkeley County and the values of South Carolina generally. So we're happy to be there. And we couldn't have done it without that team. Wombo Bond Dickinson and Stephanie were part of that team. And uh, we, we're thrilled to do this. And uh, I look forward to uh, further discussions on this topic. Excellent. Thank you very much. And thank you both, Stephanie and John, for joining me on the podcast. That's a generous offer uh, to do it. We're recording here in beautiful Charleston, South Carolina. So I encourage folks to come visit, see the site itself. Hope you have an opportunity to work with either John or Stephanie. Thank you for listening. Uh, please subscribe to the In-House Roundhouse on iTunes or Apple Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We will see you at the next station.